listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, I am joined from Dennis Heisman from Tilting Point. Dennis, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm Dennis. I'm working as a game manager in the Tilting Point Barcelona office. I'm currently leading the team on Languinis, which is um, an internally developed title. Um, and working on two upcoming projects that I can't really talk about yet. Oh, secrets. We're excited. Um, cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about Tilting Point for folks that may be unfamiliar with them? Yeah, so uh, Tilting Point is a, a mobile games publisher, and um, we kind of offer a very specific approach to to kind of levels of engagement. You can start joining the family um, uh, on a on a kind of low engagement UA only level, and then from there on, as trust builds and as we deliver results, um, the the engagement becomes deeper and deeper. So it's a very kind of modular approach, and where we don't necessarily have to go all in right from the beginning. Um, and yeah, and, and then the final goal, or if everybody's happy, um, it would kind of end in this co development where you actually yeah. make a game from scratch together. That sounds really cool, a really unique approach to publishing that I haven't heard of other folks doing. So that's awesome. Uh, But let's talk about you a little bit. How did you get into this world of gaming? Tell us about your story. Yeah. So um, I studied industrial engineering and kind of at the end of the studies, I realized I actually don't care about the engineering part that much. So that was pretty smart. studied that in Southwest Germany and um, kind of saw this future of working the automotive industry. And at some point I thought, ah, that's not really for me. And uh, fortunately in the, in the town where I was studying Karlsruhe, uh, there was Flair Games, a mobile games publisher as well. And they had this open um, role for a QA tester as a working student. So that's how I kind of jumped into that industry and um, was really happy right from day one. Um, and then, worked full-time at some point, and then after two years in QA, made the switch to product management, applied internally as a junior product manager, um, had to go through the whole process of doing a presentation, etc. It was a bit awkward, but it worked in the end. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, and then stayed in that product role um, since then. Um, at the beginning, very much focused on live ops, um, on, on some of our titles. And then as... I progressed through the kind of product management roles. Um, it became more broad and more high level. And then um, two years ago now, I switched to Tilting Point uh, to build up the new Barcelona office. I was the first product person there. Um, and then uh, kind of build that up, build up a whole team. We're now many, many more people than we used to when I started um, and switched into with the game manager role last year in August. Cool. Um, I'm going to ask you one clarifying question because Mm -hmm. I've heard product managers defined as a lot of different things at different companies, but what does the role of product manager actually mean to you? Um, Probably the best way to describe it would be this weird mix of data analyst and designer. And um, it it kind of really depends on on the team. Um, Sometimes it's more designer. Uh, some companies might call it monetization designer, for example, the role. 
Um, whereas in other other companies, they might call it business performance manager, and then it's much more focused on the the numbers aspect and less on the um, on the design aspect. Uh, but yeah, not a. I know that in some companies, product manager is also rather a marketing role, um, and that's mm-hmm. that's not where I'm coming from. Yeah, I have heard it called like a, a mini CEO for a particular game or a particular feature. Yeah, I mean that sounds very flattering, of course. <laughs> Cool. Uh, what makes you get out of bed every day and continue your work? I think like if I had to boil it down to one single reason um, would be the, the kind of people the industry attracts. Um, it's, it's a super unique mix of very young and, and smart, um, pretty nerdy. So you can still play your <laughs> Super Smash Brothers at lunch, um, but Everyone is also a bit of an entrepreneur and everybody wants to not just make a great game, but also a commercially successful game. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a pretty unique uh, combination. And then just in general, every day, you, since the, the industry is moving so fast and, and uh, kind of changing constantly, no day is really the same. And you as a company and as a person, you have to kind of reinvent yourself uh, very, very frequently. Um, so kind of the speed at which things move and uh, the speed at which you can try out new stuff and how easy it is to try out new things. Um, I think that's also very unique and you might not have that luxury in, in other industries. Yeah, that's very fascinating. So when you say it's very fast to try something out, like what does that mean? Like let's say, well, okay. So you recently put out a great article for Languinus I say that right? Languinis? Where, you know, you guys wanted to increase your ARP DAO, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think the approach that you took in there was rather than, you know, taking the typical approach of how do I get my paying players to spend more? Can we really understand how my people are making purchases so that I can get them to make more of those since they're already likely to make those? Um, which I thought was super fascinating. But um, let's say you wanted to take that to, let's say, Clash of Clans, which is a game that, you know, was once, you know, all-time high and has continued to kind of decline over the years. Let's say you wanted to boost, you know, revenue in Clash of Clans. Like, what sort of approach would you take towards that? Oh, okay. I mean, that's the, no, the, the magic formula. I think <laughs> mostly, I mean, what I was referring to with the whole fast topic is that um, you have data available um, unlike in, in any other industry where you, you really can mm-hmm. properly understand how people are engaging with your game. Um, so drawing conclusions is uh, is much faster because you, they're, they're informed and, and your changes are informed by, by actual data. And so you don't have to kind of make changes blindly. You still can. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's also <laughs> amazing. The fact that you can kind of just try things out and A-B test them. But um, all in all, uh, also the scope of the games is simply smaller. Like if you're working in AAA, yeah. uh, shipping an update might take you much, uh, much, much more time. Whereas in, in mobile, you can... Mm-hmm ship an update every week if you if you really want to um if you look at colibri and how they iterate on their games um Mm. they just try out stuff constantly and just ship an update every single week and uh, sometimes (laughs) it works and sometimes it doesn't yeah 
Do you, so you have a lot of data, which seems to be how you mostly make your data or your decisions, but do you ever utilize like user feedback, talking to users, looking at the community? Do you ever do any sort of like targeted surveys so that you can see like, okay, rather than just like talking to people in mass, because then you might get only the very loudest players. Do you ever mm -hmm. do something across the board to say like, okay, here's what my paying players say, and here's what my non-paying players say, and here's what my new players are saying. Basically, yeah. 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 I, I think, so there's a couple of ways that we can do that. Like um, there are services like Playtest Cloud, for example, we can like actually watch people play for a long time, which is super helpful, especially uh, to see how people who are not you interact with the game. Like <laughs> you see them struggle with something that you might not even have thought about. Yeah. Um, uh, then I think there are some new tools, or not necessarily new, but uh, that have popped up recently, which is just more usage of Discord or um, specific Reddits even run by the company um, where mm. you get this super high quality feedback of, of players who are really enjoying your game. Um, it's, of course, not... Not something you can use in any game. I think Linguini's, for example, <laughs> uh, Discord wouldn't be a good idea simply because our audience isn't using it. Yep. But I've seen other smaller games that have thousands of users in their Discord and they're super engaged and they find bugs. They give super valuable feedback. So kind of this VIP outreach and an engaged user outreach is, is super helpful. That's great. Um, so have gone from, you know, QA into product management and now, you know, basically running the studio as, as game lead. Um, what are some key lessons you've learned along the way? I think uh, a more kind of personal one, not necessarily related to any of the, of the roles would just be as a, especially junior a kind of industry member is to be really careful with deadlines and to not commit to deadlines that are unnecessarily tight. I think something that definitely happened to me in the junior product manager role when you might get approached by, I don't know, the head of studio, hey, we have this gate meeting coming up. Uh, can you help us with a competitor research? And that might sound super exciting. It's maybe something you never really did before. And then you commit to a, a deadline and say, yeah, I'll deliver that by end of this week and you you set yourself a, a stupid deadline that mm. nobody would have asked of you um, just because you're excited about the work and excited about the opportunity so kind of learning by when do you need this or even <laughs> saying no or how important is this um, these are really important questions that you need to learn how to ask and um, because the last thing you kind of want as someone junior is to be kind of perceived as unreliable as, as right promising to deliver something and then two days later, ah, sorry, I, I can't deliver mm. it. This is taking me much more time. Yeah. Um, and then more, more product management specific as a key lesson, I think would be the whole topic of statistical significance. So really, um, really being, uh, being diligent with your data. And um, what I've seen lots of people do is being super diligent when the data doesn't tell the story you want to tell. Mm. Um, but then, if the data points towards what you want to tell anyways, then it's probably fine. It's probably correct. And uh, especially when it comes to A-B testing, um, people underestimate how much traffic you need and how, how big the impact actually needs to be for it to be truly meaningful. And that happens a lot 
a lot in, in soft launch when people have this super small user base, they already want to kind of improve the game, they run an A-B test, um, but in the end it, it probably it, it can be a waste of time if you're not mm -hmm. careful uh, about sample sizes and, and statistical significance. So I think at least at the beginning you should be super diligent until you get a good feeling of the numbers as well. Right? At some point you get this good gut feeling of, yeah, this, this should be enough users. You can still run the tests afterwards to see if, if your gut feeling was right, but at least at the beginning, I would kind of stick to the process. Yeah, no, that's, that's really great feedback. Um, I, I know that I have personally encountered when we first brought in AB tests and stuff, um, no knowledge of statistical significance. We're like, oh, we'll just run it on 5% of the population and compare and, uh, yeah, we definitely made some mistakes, um, but uh, luckily we've learned our lessons since then. Yeah. I think my, my favorite story when it comes to A-B testing was uh, one of the earliest A-B tests I ever ran, and there was just a setup error, and both groups didn't get any treatment. Um, <laughs> so both of them just had control, but they were, were still tracked as control and, and variant A. Um, and then we did the analysis, and variant A was outperforming control. Um, <laughs> but only in like one specific metric. And then we looked deeper into it and saw, oh, wait, nothing happened. This, it's impossible that this test had a positive impact. Um, that just shows you how, how volatile lots of these numbers are. Oh yeah, it's, it's crazy sometimes. So you've got these two new secret games that you're working on that we're excited about. Um, so what is your primary goal when you're working on a new game? <laughs> On, uh, I think the it, it kind of the, the goal of course um, varies depending on on the role. I think when I was still doing live ops or junior product manager, um, most of my focus would have probably been on updao or maybe revenue per weekly active user or just daily revenue, um, ignoring the whole DAU uh, part of it. And then when switching to product management, the the number probably shifted towards LTV. So looking at, you, you find some sort of reference code that you're fairly confident that it won't change too much. So usually could be something like iOS, United States mm -hmm. organics uh, that you keep on looking at. And well, ultimately the goal is to improve that uh, LTV curve for each uh, successive cohort. Um, now in this kind of game lead role, things change quite a lot. Um, there's all of a sudden like company goals. You might focus as a company on profitability or as a company on revenue growth. So there are, there are all of a sudden different things to consider than just the product. Um, but if I had to boil it down into one number would now be um, ROAS because then the whole UA part also comes into it. So I'm not happy anymore with just a good LTV curve. Um, <laughs> if we can't buy users um, and, and scale it up with that LTV, then then it, the game is not scalable and that's a, that's a problem. So uh, yeah, that would be the one number that I care the most about now. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have a certain time frame where you're looking to have that, you know, ROAS um, basically paid back to you. Like I, I was recently talking to a, a game studio lead who kind of said, uh, you know, for us, our new most important goal when buying from Facebook at least is to have 
that revenue recouped from an LTV within 30 days mm-hmm. because anything beyond that, it just makes it very difficult for us to actively, actively then scale that up into, you know, more users and such. Yeah. I mean, it depends, of course, on kind of the shape of your curve. If you have a game that's super front-loaded, um, a 30-day or even shorter goal might be totally fine. I think you might run into into problems if you have um, like a 4X game. Um, day 30 is probably way too short to really mm-hmm. recoup. Um, but now with the whole IDFA topic, um, this will also change a bit. Like games yeah. that have a very long tail LTV, uh, they'll have a tough time probably, um, yeah, just just estimating the the revenue of their cohorts. Mm. So um, usually, right now I would pick like day sixty most likely. I think that's still pretty reasonable. Uh, Thirty makes sense, but it's kind of all kinds of answers make sense depending on your <laughs> game. Yeah. Are you guys doing anything specifically with the uh, the IDFA disappearing? Have you been thinking about stuff? Are there other things that folks should be thinking about or doing that you guys have done at Tilting Point? Yeah, so I, I don't want to spoil too much because I think there will be a, a blog post soon. <laughs> ah. um, obviously, we, we have like a whole uh, kind of team of champions that tackle the topic right now. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that there are to kind of have this resource and that we don't have to figure that out on our own as a as a yeah. game team um so they're from from engineers to ua specialists to uh, pro- uh, project managers etc we we have this this team that is now preparing every every game in the portfolio for for ios 14 including adjustments to ua strategy mm. yeah well, for, for studios that are worried about it, talk to uh, Tilting Point about potentially a publisher relationship. And actually on that note, um, for product teams that aren't working with a publisher partner like Tilting Point, can you tell us what they could expect? Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah, the, the kind of UA benefits probably are talked about enough already from like funding and, and just expertise. Um, I think kind of the, the biggest concern people probably have would be around, oh, there's all of a sudden all these people who have input on my roadmap and uh, I lose control of my roadmap. Um, but just talking about some pure benefits, um, I think the one of the most important ones would be benchmarks. A publisher simply has access to data that you, you as a single developer don't have. You might have your app any or sensor tower data but a publisher will be able to give you examples of this feature increased this and that by this and that many percentage, uh, or don't even bother trying this, or this is a best practice on this topic. So just having all these benchmarks and data and knowing whether your game is doing well compared to other games that are out there or not, um, that's incredibly helpful and can save you lots of time when doing roadmap prioritization. Um, all of a sudden, you know, ah, this will increase my LTV by 15%. And I know it because this other game that's very similar to ours um, did the same thing. Um, I think the other big, the, the biggest benefit is probably though uh, talent and people. Um, you might have requirements for, let's say, a UX designer, or you might need a um, economy designer, but you can't really justify a full-time role. Um, and then a publisher has so many games in their portfolio that they can easily fill that role and you can kind of tap into that pool of resources uh, anytime you need them. So yeah, there's tons of those examples. UX um, 
economy. I think admonetization is a really big one, uh, but also when it comes to life of best practices or CRM, um, there will always be a specialist at the publisher who worked on many, many games and has lots of data to back it up, uh, who can kind of fill a gap uh, temporarily. And then I think lastly, a smaller advantage would be tools. Um, just due to economy of scale, um, the publisher can afford to use certain tools that might be way too expensive for, for a single developer, mm -hmm. from live ops to data analysis to, to machine learning tools, whatever you can think of. Um, yeah, the, the publisher has access to those and you, by extension, also have access to those then. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'd never really considered the the roadmap prioritization or the whole, oh, we've done this before. Um, I once uh, heard a quote, I actually just found it here, um, and it kind of goes, out of the features we released last year, which one shouldn't we have done? Players liked everything we released. Um, but then they kind of said, but that's actually the wrong question. The right one was, what did we didn't do or which one didn't we do that players would have loved even more? So mm -hmm. I, you know, I think the worst thing that you can do is spend a lot of time and effort putting out some feature that doesn't move the metrics or, you know, you just spent, you know, two months and like players aren't really responding to it the way that you had. And, you know, I think if, you know, Tilting Point had already done that in one of their other games in a similar genre, they could have been like, hey, you know, we just did this and here were the results, mm -hmm. but we did this other thing before and here were those results. So maybe you should consider a feature more like this. So just helping those product teams build the right things essentially to really move the the trigger. Yeah, yeah. And, and essentially since since all the games kind of do that on their own anyways, like you, you do a feature analysis after you release it. Um, mm -hmm. These are always, you don't even need to request them. They're just there and they're, they're free to share. So yeah, that's, uh, that's incredibly helpful. And we had a bunch of developers reaching out to us asking about, I don't know, level balancing or anything similar. And uh, we can kind of deliver them a full report on, on a <laughs> silver plate. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, so moving back to, to you a little bit, um, here's a question I always like to ask. If you'd known everything that you know now, what would you have done differently when you started in games? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few like obvious answers, like yeah, I would release uh, Pokemon Go before anybody else or do my <laughs> own Clash Royale. Uh, but these are kind of the, the easy ones to, to give us an answer. Um, there's a few, I would probably have just studied something different right from the start. Um, mm. I think especially statistics is, is a topic that I, I would like to know more about and be really more proficient in. Um, but then another thing I really enjoy, I would enjoy doing more is scripting small stuff. So um, just being able to, I don't know, pull some data into your forecasting tool and saving yourself the manual exports and not being mm -hmm. super reliant always on your on your data team. Um, yeah, probably it's it's a bit of a guilty pleasure. It's probably not the best <laughs> use of my time, but it's also just something that's really fun uh, to to do. And sometimes you might automate something, and you need two hours to automate it, and you would need one hour to do it manually. Uh, but these two hours are way more. 
I've I've fallen into that too. It's, it's especially around like learning data and then digging into it and stuff. Some people are like, "Are you sure you're the right person to be doing this?" And I'm like, "Probably not," but it's it's pretty let, fun. Let me have this. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, what is your big dream for your career, or what trace would you like to leave in the world? Oh uh, yeah, that's really hard to answer right now, mostly due to the whole COVID thing. So one thing that kind of completely was a complete game changer for me was now this larger opportunity to do work from home. Um, mm -hmm. Before that, I kind of accepted the fact, okay, you'll have to live close to or in a big city, probably the rest of your career, because that's where, where all the companies are. Yeah. Um, and that changed now, obviously. I think work from home is becoming a bigger and bigger topic. Uh, lots of um, companies just offer that as a default now, um, which is, of course, really interesting, but it, it has some implications on what kind of role you can have. There are, there are roles that are more compatible with it and others that aren't. Um, I still haven't figured out yet how big of a role that plays for me and whether that's really something I need in the future, being able to work from home or not. But it's it's a big kind of game changer and changes how how to do career planning in a way. Um, I think obviously one one thing probably everyone in the industry would love to do is do something with kind of their A team of of colleagues that they work with. Like you have your list of your favorite designer you ever worked with, yep. your favorite your A manager, etc. And you would love to get them all together, make your own make your own company, ideally have a really good BD guy in there too. We can do all the investor talks um, and then do this amazing game that you always uh, dreamt of. But um, that's, I'm, I'm keeping that for, for the somewhat distant future. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and in, in terms of trace, I think one thing I struggled a lot with um, coming right out of school was kind of getting, having an idea of what's even out there in terms of jobs and what skills are required. And I think especially lots of people our age, um, our parents kind of entered their jobs in a, in a very different landscape and the skills required back then were very, very different from today. Um, so sometimes they might not be the best kind of people to give you advice on. Hey, this, this field of studies is really relevant or this skill is really relevant. And I would have loved for someone to be at my school when I was 18 and tell me, hey, by the way, these are the 10 different jobs you can do in, in mobile gaming or 20 different jobs. And here are all the different skills you that would really help you get into that role. And that's something I'd love to do at, I don't know, my old school. Just go there and teach yeah. uh, give them give people some some pointers pointers mentorship I, re I really like that idea that is a great one you should you should do that i'll encourage you <laughs> do it <laughs> um what is one recommendation that you'd give to product managers or, or live ops teams or aspiring product managers out there mm -hmm. um i mean the the kind of two key lessons i had i think they also apply here um, one recommendation kind of specifically for live ops people would be um, when you when you design kind of your live ops tools um, to favor speed above everything else. Um, I've had the very first kind of live ops tool or setup I worked with was just super reliant on copy pasting way too much. And that can really kind of suck the fun out of the whole live ops manager job if you're if half of your time is spent on setup, it uh, 
um, you, you're less inclined to try out new stuff because you always know, ah, oh, that means I have to rework everything. Um, and yeah, the, the big problem in general in game development is once you have an MVP or a working system, um, asking for an improvement to that system is usually is a lot harder than getting the, the MVP. So sometimes you might be stuck with a kind of suboptimal, very slow live ops tool for a very long time because people will argue, yeah, but you can do everything you need to do. You might need a lot of time, but you can do it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if I compare the kind of live ops system I had in the very first game I worked on to the one now, um, it's it's like a massive difference from, I don't know, needing two hours to set up a sale to maybe needing five minutes to set up one. So, um, yeah, I would encourage every live ops manager out there to pay very, very special attention to not having a tool that makes everything take ages. And when you say tool, are these like homegrown built in studio tools or are there any like commercial ones out there that are, you know, worth looking at? I mean, there are definitely uh, commercial ones. Um, uh, Limplum or Delta DNA are, I think, pretty good examples of tools um, that that do that. Playfab can also be used that way. Um, personally, a big fan of home-built tools, essentially, because they, they give you a level of flexibility that is hard to beat and maybe even in combination with those tools because usually the tools allow you to do pretty good segmentation um, which might be a bit hard to build on your own. Um, but mostly when I, I don't necessarily mean the tool, but kind of the whole logic of how things are set up. So if I could pick now, uh, um, let's say I want to set up a sale and I have to enter 20 different parameters of that sale separately in, in its, in their own text field, <laughs> I'd r much rather have one big JSON that I upload right. and then I'm done. Um, than having to copy paste values a million times. Hmm. That's very interesting to think about. So, you know, folks that are working on tools should definitely be thinking about how do I make this as fast as possible? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, who inspires you? What books, newsletters, podcasts, courses would you recommend that folks be consuming? I think um, in terms of who inspires me, would probably mostly be like some some colleagues or ex-colleagues uh, that I worked with. Um, if I had to pick one that really helped me a lot would be my uh, PM mentor when I worked as a junior product manager, Abhimanyu Kumar. He's writing for Deconstruct of Fun and has like his own uh, blog now as well. And um, yeah, he taught me like almost everything I know about product management. And to this day, I still color my <laughs> Excel sheets the same way he does. So um, shout out to Manu. Um, and in terms of books and newsletters, um, I really enjoyed a book called Data Smart. It's kind of introduction to machine learning with some fun little anecdotes about, I don't know, how a supermarket can determine whether a woman is pregnant based on what she bought recently. I thought it was, was a really fun book and, and written in a kind of humorous way. Um, newsletters, uh, there, there are a few that I check out um, frequently. So I think Mobile Dev Memo is really great, uh, Deconstructor Fun, um, then Master the Meta, which is where uh, Manu is working uh, and writing for. 
and now recently we kind of ramped up our tilting point blog as well uh, and have entered uh, like published a few cool articles there um, there would be some examples yeah that's great no I, I really love the stuff that's coming out on the tilting point blog so um, once we have the the article for the iOS 14 stuff we'll definitely link it in here as well and then continue to promote that um, Final question, which is an obligatory question. <laughs> if you had one tip on how folks could be increasing their retention rates or thinking about it, what would that be? Uh, okay, okay. Um, one tip on increase. That's, that's like the hardest thing to do out of everything. <laughs> um, I think, so I have one tip that I feel like people do too much, which is focusing too much on tutorial completion rates and kind of magically assuming that improving your tutorial completion will then uh, increase all other numbers following that funnel to the same degree. I don't think that's true and it kind of makes sense to me. Otherwise, you could just get rid of your tutorial and then all of a sudden everybody stays forever. <laughs> um, I think... Uh, well, it depends on where you struggle. I think lots of games start struggling um, after, let's say, day seven or so. Um, and uh, when it becomes clear that the game cannot deliver enough interesting content long term, if you're in that position, there's a few way how, ways how you can, can address that. I think one, probably one of the easiest ways would be to uh, rely on live ops to a certain degree to make up for maybe a, a lack of variety. So you see that, for example, lots in, in um, casual games where mm -hmm. they try to keep the game fresh constantly by having this really, really large amount of different events uh, and rotating through them. So it feels like the first 30 days or so of the game, at least you have this fresh experience every time you uh, come into the game just from events alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's a bit of a um, not temporary fix just. Um, but if you need to boost your numbers immediately, um, that's probably something I would recommend. Yeah, it's a great tip. Um, if people want to contact you about anything or learning more about Tilting Point, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, probably... Well, me on LinkedIn, um, as long as you don't want to sell me local services. <laughs> um, yeah, LinkedIn uh, is the best way to go. Um, Titting Point, um, if you're interested in that, and maybe, who knows, we'll work together also when you reach out to Titting Point, uh, simply through the website. We have a, a contact form there, um, and our BD team usually answers um, as fast as possible. Great. Well, Dennis, this has been fantastic. I feel like I've learned so much in talking to you today and uh, really appreciate you coming on and hope we'll, we'll have you on again soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye now. Bye.